0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Just a little bit of a warning as you're turning there. You can tell that in my um, vocal presentation today that something's off. (laughs) That's because I've been a little sick uh, through the weekend. And... Uh, I am avoiding shaking hands. That's why I snuck in late. At the end of the service, uh, you will see me walk out the doors and walk out. I will not shake your hands. I do not want to spread this to anyone. Uh, It's not because I'm just being mean. I'm actually trying to serve you well. (laughs) Um, So with that, we're going to look at uh, Titus uh, chapter 1. And we'll start this morning with uh, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now as I begin the message I need to forewarn you something. I am not going to try to offend you but... You need to know that I have a certain love-hate relationship uh, with social media uh, that could potentially, um, I don't know, bother maybe (laughs) 75% of you. I'm not a fan. I understand it's got some good benefits. The love part of it is I like the fact that people can get exposed to truth. There is truth out there. People can get a hold of it. The hate part of it comes from the way that it affects our minds and our relationships. I could be perceived as a Luddite or somebody who is opposed to technology, but that's not the case. I do use it from time to time. My wife uses it more actively than I do. So if you ever see anything posted to my Facebook account or an Instagram feed, it wasn't me that posted it. (laughs) It was my wife. And I'm glad that she represents us in that world. But, that's not to say I do not know about these things. I used to use them quite proficiently. And of the various social media platforms out there, if you forced me to use one, I would use Twitter. Now, I have not been endorsed by Twitter to make that comment. Let me tell you why. (laughs) I particularly enjoy Twitter because it limits you. You have to think about what you're going to say before you say it. 140 characters. Well, it used to be 140 characters. Back in November, they actually changed it to 280. But you still have to think, I want a message that I need to communicate to other people. What's the best way I can say it? What's the most concise way I can get across what's on my mind for my social media audience, whoever they may be? Well, I like being forced to think that way And even in the introductory part of Twitter, you're forced to summarize yourself. So you have 140 characters to say whatever you want to say. You also have 140 characters to introduce yourself to anyone who may want to know you. Just 140 little letters. What would you use, if limited to only 140 characters, to sum up your life for whoever may be interested? If you've ever created an account, you realize it's a challenging prospect. Because you have to think, well, who is it that will be following me? What do they need to know about me? It largely depends on who your audience will be. You want to be strategic, you want to be terse, you want to be pithy. But you want to know that you're best representing yourself in the smallest amount of space. We not only do this with social media, we also do this with our businesses, right? They normally have a tagline, some type of slogan, some type of mission statement that best sums up in just a short, pithy way what they represent to the world, what services they can provide or offer. It's a challenging thing to get that slogan right. People pay a lot of money for advertising. But what about for a church? If, it, if a church was to sum itself up In just a few words, maybe 140 characters or less. What would it say? What would it be about? I think this is particularly challenging for our conception of the church because the church is one of the most ill-defined organizations in all the world. It seems like anybody can start something, call it a church, give it a mission, and nobody has any questions about it. Some churches are all about, they would put this in their byline, if you will, their programs, their buildings, their size, their campuses, their sites, their artistic sensitivity, their uplifting environment, their cultural relevance. By the way, every one of those things I just listed, I know churches that would try to sum themselves up with those characteristics. And while they do define themselves in such terms, the question would be, should they? If we had to define ourselves with just a few little words, what would those words be? Not what would they be, but what should they be? What should our church byline say? What are we striving for? Where are we headed Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, answers this for us in his letter to Titus. It's short. It's powerful. It's dense. After Paul was released from Rome in his first imprisonment, he continued to minister around the Aegean Sea. In one of his journeys, he made it to the little island of Crete. Titus, a man who is not mentioned in the book of Acts, has accompanied him on this journey. Titus is, I mean, excuse me, Crete is a, a bothersome place. Uh, it's characterized by just pagan morals. They're considered to be a lazy, slothful, seafaring people. And they're also got another deadly mix: Judaism which is basically legalism, had infiltrated that place. So you either had one of two extremes on the island. You had the legalist who thought they should follow all the rules to be right with God. Or you had the libertine who thought you didn't have to follow any rules to be right with God. You just do what you want to do. (laughs) So needless to say, Paul has a challenge for him faced. I mean, Paul has his challenge squarely faced in front of him, and Titus is there to help. And so Paul does his work. Many churches seem to be established as we read through this letter. And yet we find that the work is not done. God moves Paul on to another place, and yet he leaves Titus there. He leaves Titus there to finish the work, to to put it in order. And he doesn't just leave him, he leaves him with a letter. He leaves him with a letter that will positively chart his course of action moving forward, providing a charter for any church moving forward in a corrupt world. So even though the letter is written to Titus, Titus already knows these things. He's an associate of Paul. He's someone who has been with Paul frequently. Actually, he's a trusted associate of Paul. We know this because he's mentioned 12 times in Paul's other letters, most frequently in correspondence with the church at Corinth if you may remember well, that this was one of the most problematic churches that Paul ever had to deal with. And yet Titus was his right-hand man in the middle of all the action. So my point is that Titus knows these things, but Paul writes a letter to him anyway so that he can show it to these struggling churches. He wants all of the churches on the island of Crete to know what faithful ministry is to be all about. And he doesn't even wait to the body of the letter to get there. He starts at the very beginning in the salutation itself. Well, ultimately, what's going on in these four verses, as hard as they may be to read, is Paul is establishing the priorities or the prerogatives of apostolic faithful ministry, and he's handing it over to Titus and saying, this is what the churches on that island should be about. And in turn, he's telling us what our church should be all about. So particularly, we'll look at three features of faithful ministry so that we can emulate this within our own church. Again, Paul's showing us what he's all about so that we can know what we are to be all about. Now, instead of just giving these to you as I normally would at the outset, um, I'm going to make you work for it a little bit. Because I want you to see these from the text yourself. Don't worry, for those of you who like to write notes, I will give you the heading. But I'm not going to start off that way. I want to see if you can figure it out by looking at the text yourself. So one of the first features of faithful ministry is found right in the opening half of verse 1. Let's look at it again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Do you see it? What does Paul seem to be about here? Well, it seems that Paul wanted Titus, and by extension, the churches in Crete, to know that apostolic ministry was all about the elect being saved through faith. It says it there in the text. He says that he is about the elect being saved through faith. Paul seems to be targeted at faith. This is his purpose. This is his aim. Now, what is faith? Well, faith is clearly the means of conversion. This is that point at which somebody actually responds to the gospel. When, When they believe, when they trust in the message of Jesus Christ, they have exercised faith. This is what Paul is targeted at. He knows that he has succeeded when his people that he's preaching to believe, trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their Messiah. It's people coming to trust in the proclamation concerning Jesus. For those of you who have grown up in church, you've frequently heard this. You know this well. One of the more famous verses that we quote around here very often is Ephesians 2a. For by grace you have been saved through, say it out loud, faith. Or even more famous, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, say it, believes. Same word, in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the point, this is the moment of contact in which someone becomes a Christian when they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But notice that it's not just any faith, but it's the faith of the elect. So even though they had been chosen by God in eternity, Paul is still aimed at seeing them believe in this life. Now, you know, the the classic accusation here is that we could be reading into this, somebody could be concerned that the text says God's elect. Um, But let's keep in mind, it is the text that says God's elect. He doesn't describe them in any other way. They're described as the chosen of God. So, am I saying that people who believe are chosen by God? No. God is. It's what the text says. If you struggle with that, I understand. I I get it. I would encourage you to turn with me to Acts 13, 48 to see a good illustration of this. If you don't want to turn there, you can just listen. But Acts 13, verse 48. We have here the, the apostles are preaching. And notice the result of the apostolic mission to the Gentiles. It says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I don't think there's any way around that, friends. Who believed? The ones who were appointed to eternal life. The benefits of God's election, though, while prepared from eternity past, do not take effect, though, until one believes. Now, if you want to reconcile your misunderstanding of election in this sermon, you've picked the wrong one (laughs) because we're going to keep the focus on the text. The text just says what Paul's about. And all he wants you to know is that there's a human side and a divine side to the act of salvation. God initiated it, but still, even though God initiates, man must believe. And even though God is the one that ultimately saves, we still have an obligation to call people to faith. Faithful apostolic ministry, true ministries, are dedicated to seeing people respond in faith to the gospel. They don't just sit back and say, yeah, God's going to do that. They know that God is doing something, but they also know that they have a responsibility in this act. True, faithful churches are all about conversions through faith. If you want to write a note down, it's conversions through faith. That's what they're all about. If there was a Twitter bio line, it would be church, all about conversions through faith. This is something that they want to see. This is something that they're aimed at, something that they're targeted toward. Paul's theology by no means hindered his evangelism. It actually fueled it. I understand, I really do, that our seeking faith in others can seem logically inconsistent if God has chosen who will be saved. We're not the first people to wrestle through this in 2,000 years of church history. Uh, one of the more recent men who have helped me with that, I mentioned him a few weeks ago, was a man by the name of R.C. Sproul. You can still find his tapes and videos online. He just recently went to be with the Lord. He was talking about how he was wrestling through this subject in a class and he says the the professor actually confronts these 20 future pastors sitting in a semicircle in front of a room and says, "All right, if God has chosen who will be saved, why are we supposed to share the Gospel? Well, Sproul admits when he's telling this story that he has no clue how to answer this question. And so he's glad, though, and relieved to find out that the professor starts on this side of the room and Sproul is sitting on this side of the room and one by one he begins to ask each of these guys and he's thinking, well, surely somebody will know by the time it gets to me. Well, as you can imagine, the first guy goes and he says he doesn't know. The second guy goes, he doesn't know. The third guy knows, he doesn't know. And it makes it all the way around to the 20th guy, Sproul himself. And now all the pressure's on him. Surely one of these budding pastors can have an answer. And Sproul says that he muttered out something just spur of the moment not really knowing what to say, unconfident, intimidated by his professor. And it resembled something like this. He says, well, Dr. Gerstner, I know this isn't the answer you're looking for. But one small reason we should still be concerned about evangelism is that, well, um, you know... Christ does command us to evangelize, and these are Sproul's words. Gerstner's eyes, the professor, started to flame. He said, "Ah, I see, Mister Sproul. One small reason is that your Savior, the Lord of Glory, the King of Kings, has so commanded it. A small reason, Mister Sproul." Is it barely significant to you that the same sovereign God who sovereignly decrees your election also sovereignly commands your involvement in the task of evangelism? And he said, oh, how I wished I would have never used that word small. (laughs) May we get his point as well. We don't get to Make ministry about what we want to make it about. We have a command from a sovereign God that we're to be all about the faith of God's elect. Evangelism is our duty. This is that which He has commanded, and that should be enough for us. But there's even more. See, evangelism is not only a duty, it is also a privilege. God is allowing us to participate in the greatest work of human history. It's the act of redemption. One of my favorite passages on this matter is Romans 10, 13 through 15. You're familiar with the context because you've heard Romans ten nine before growing up. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then maybe in your evangelism before, you've used uh, Romans 10, 13. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? You've heard that? Notice what Paul says here. This is great logic. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We've got that one. Check. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, so if they're going to call on the name of the Lord, they need to believe. But how how are they going to believe? Well, he continues, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And it continues, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? (laughs) And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Do you see the chain of logic here? (laughs) That there needs to be belief, but how are people going to know what to believe in unless someone tells them? Paul is saying that even though Jesus does the saving, we have an instrumental part in that. We have been commissioned. We are the connector between God's sovereign grace and man's response. And that is a privilege to take part in. See, election simply reminds us that God initiates salvation. And that is not to scare any of us. That is actually to comfort us. We could be bold because we know that some people have been chosen by God and they will respond. Otherwise, knowing what we know of man, that he is spiritually dead, we would have no hope. We would never see anyone respond in faith. Dead things, ladies and gentlemen, do not respond. I heard a guy ask one time, what is it that dead things can do? What can a dead thing do? And the obvious answer to that is nothing. But one guy actually raised his hand and answered, stink. (laughs) Well, that's about the extent of what we can do unless God radically intervenes in our life. And guess what he's saying? We can... Be a part of seeing people come to life in Christ by calling them to faith, by presenting the message of Christ. This is what we are all about. And I know the obvious question in the room for some of you who may be visiting is this. How do I know if I'm elect? Simple simple question I'd ask you in response. Have you placed your faith in Jesus yet? If you have, yes, you're elect. If you don't, you're not. Would you respond to Him in faith? That's the difference. That's what it's about. We want this for you. This is the desire of our heart as a church. We don't know who's elect or not, so we share the gospel with everyone, and we know that when they have responded in faith, there's one more that God has rescued. So Paul, through the centuries, still commands us to be all about Conversions through faith. But there's another feature of faithful ministry in this text. And again, I want you to look at your Bibles carefully to see if you can figure it out. This is in the second half of verse 1. Notice, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul here also wanted Titus and, by extension, the churches on Crete and, by extension, us. (laughs) To know that apostolic ministry, authorized ministry of God, was concerned with godly living through the truth, through a knowledge of the truth, particularly. Now, what's interesting here, though, is how truth is modified. He says that truth either accords with or corresponds to or intends to accomplish godliness. That's what the preposition is telling us. Now, I love the word knowledge here because it refers to an experiential knowledge. There's a basic Greek word for knowledge, and there's another word for knowledge by experience. He's saying that there's an experiential knowledge of the truth, something objective, that leads to a godly life, godliness. This term truth is often used through the pastoral epistles to refer to the content of the gospel. We're not just talking about all truth everywhere. We're talking about God's specially revealed truth in the gospel. And here's the great thing about it. The apostolic aim of truth, of this faith and of this knowledge is not esoteric, impractical, but it is impactful. God intends for it to have an impact in our life. And what is that impact? It is godliness. Here's another way to say that. Godlikeness. Being like God. For some of you who've come from really harsh legalistic, fundamentalist backgrounds, godliness could come across as not smoking, chewing, or running with those who do. I think that was the phrase that was often used. (laughs) Um, Godliness was uh, a certain um, clothing style or whether or not you went to movies or whether or not you drank alcohol. Godliness was just a checklist of some kind. This is not the biblical definition of godliness. Now that is not to deny that godliness does not have external attributes. But godliness is something more fundamental. It is being like God, His character. So, what is God like? Well, God is love, so therefore we are loving. Uh, God is righteous, therefore we live rightly. We do that which is upright. We're honest in our dealings with others. God is merciful, therefore we show mercy to others. God is holy, therefore we hate sin. Do you see how this is something that's internal? Surely it will manifest itself externally, right? But godliness just isn't some type of external checklist. So what I want you to see is that Paul is aiming truth at the hearts of individuals, hoping that Trusting that, that truth will have an impact on them internally and make them like God. I would call this consecration through knowledge. Consecration through knowledge. Consecration, holiness, godliness through knowledge. And brothers and sisters, we'll see that this is a major theme of Titus. He'll actually repeat this like four or five different times in the epistle. We'll see it another time in chapter 1. You'll see it again in chapter 2. It's again the main theme in chapter 3. And then you get all the way to the very end of the book. And he's like giving the names. You know, like you think he's done. And then he says one more time, verse 14 of chapter 3, like as he's closing it out. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. What does he mean by good works? The same thing, godliness. He's talking about truth having an impact on individuals. So faithful ministries, by necessity, possess and stay with me here. It's like some type of like cognitive, intellectual element. All right, you get that? So when like we come to church on Sunday, <laughs> yes, we want to experience God. We want to feel passionately, but we also want to learn deeply because it's about the knowledge of the truth. Uh, People who visit our church are often surprised to find that the preaching lasts for an hour or less, typically. But it's around that mark, 50 minutes to an hour. And it's like teaching for an hour. Like, why would you go to a church that teaches for an hour? Because it is the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. I don't know anything else that can sustain long-term godliness. Godliness. How many of you have ever been to a church service and, man, you felt the emotional high? Like the band was just like, they, they were on. The pastor told an awesome sad story at the end. And like you're ready to like put, I mean, the, the world on fire for Jesus until you pick your kids up from the nursery. <laughs> why, why is that? It's because just emotional stirring can't sustain you. (laughs) Knowledge leads to godliness. Not just stirred emotion. Am I anti-emotional? Absolutely not. (laughs) But a true knowledge will actually stir up the emotion in an appropriate way. So faithful ministries, they possess a cognitive element, but hear me carefully. They don't end there. They don't end there. We can't just say, all right, we learned a lot about Jesus today, therefore check, we're good. I know a lot of people who know a lot about the gospel, who know a lot about theology proper, who don't live godly lives. We have failed if we end with the mere intellectual. Paul is not just about the knowledge of the truth, but he's about the knowledge of the truth that accords to godly living. I think we all know that experiential knowledge accords with certain behaviors. I remember growing up, elementary school, right? And I'm learning about Isaac Newton. And what's the classic story with Isaac Newton? He discovers gravity. Well, it was already there, but he found it. He realized it was there. The apple falls on his head. I don't even know if that story's true. But I learn about Isaac Newton. I learn about gravity. Then I I take classes on, what is it? Physics? Yeah, physics. I tried to block that phase out of my life. That was a really horrible experience for me. (laughs) If physics were, we actually learned the math behind the gravity. But you know what? That was one way I learned gravity. But I actually learned gravity way before I ever learned about Isaac Newton. And way before I ever learned about physics. And that was like falling off a bed as a baby. <laughs> it only takes a few times of falling off the bed or falling off the bunk bed or falling off the fort or falling off the bike to realize, wow, like this, I get pulled down to the ground. That's what I would call an experiential knowledge. An experiential knowledge of certain things leads to certain behaviors or actions. So I want to show you just very concretely how this experiential knowledge of gravity affects me today. Just a few years ago, my wife and family decided we would take off for the Grand Canyon. We were living in California at the time, so this was easier. For Christmas, we were at the Grand Canyon, I think on Christmas Day. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I just thought I would go and take in the sweeping vistas. (laughs) But let me tell you, Gravity, my experiential knowledge of gravity, affected my experience at the Grand Canyon that day. As excited as I was to see that gaping hole in the ground, I did not just go running up to the edge. I moved cautiously, gingerly. Actually, I don't even know if we let the kids see over the edge because we were just so afraid that gravity would pull them down. I think I was the only one that made it, and partly because it was like 15 degrees outside. We kept them inside. But you all understand that your knowledge of gravity would affect how you would uh, interact with the Grand Canyon or interact with being on top of a building or for those of you who had to do hurricane shutters this year, gravity affects how you stand on top of a ladder. I mean, you understand certain things. It impacts the way that you live. Now, if that's true of gravity, how much more true would that be of God Himself? When you learn that God is holy and that He hates sin with a righteous, perfect passion, what does that do for you in your own battle against sin? Or when you fail and you know that God is forgiving and that He offers forgiveness fully and freely through Jesus Christ, what does that do for you? You seek forgiveness. You revel in it. You rest in it. And when you know that that God can overcome anything and that He can give victory over overwhelming odds and when you're facing temptation or when you're tempted to give up, you know that God is your sustainer. What does that do for you? It enables you to persevere. My point is that theology impacts practice. Faithful ministry, yes, is about learning. But it's about a learning that leads to living. Yes, it's about doctrine. But it's about a doctrine that leads to duty. It is not just here, but it is here, through here, out into the way that we live. And I want you to know that this is why our church is so concerned about this. We don't want you to be all education and no action. One of the concrete ways that you see this is that, for those of you who are we're constantly asking you to pray for the church. We send you an email every week reminding you to pray for the church. We have a church directory for you printed, and we remind you to pray for the church. And we, we have the same, like, seven prayer requests that we just keep giving you over and over and over again. I want you to be careful that you don't overlook that. We're, we, we're not just, like, lacking ideas. We're, we're asking you to pray for some specific things. Because we want to see them. And I want to remind you of a few of them. These are some of the things that we ask our members to pray for every week. Pray that God would bless the preaching of His Word at Faith Bible. What's that? That's the intellectual part, right? But here's the sub-point. Pray that our church will be faithful hearers and doers of the Word. Notice, you code down a few more prayer requests. It says, pray for the effectiveness of small groups and their leaders. Notice. In applying God's Word to the daily walk of those at faith. Now we understand that small groups aren't the only way that you can apply truth to your life. But the small groups at Faith Bible Church, for those of you who aren't a part of one, are focused on taking the message from Sunday morning and applying it to each other's lives and searching out those implications of the truth and seeing it lived out. Another prayer request. Pray. Pray that our understanding of the gospel, there's the cognitive element, will be fleshed out in our daily living. There's the conduct element. And then here's the subpoints: Pray that in our daily lives we would do good, honor God, and commend the gospel. Pray that we would grow in holiness and continue to develop a counterculture that exhibits an alternative to the world's view of control, money, and self. Phil, we might need to shorten that sentence. That one's long. <laughs> but, it's a good statement nonetheless. We are praying. We, we pray three different times on this list that we would learn truth and that we would live truth. That's what a faithful ministry is about. Do we do this perfectly? No. But we want to. That's why we keep praying for it. So, faithful ministries are all about conversions through faith, consecration through knowledge. And there's a third thing. See if you can see it there in verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. We've got another prepositional phrase here. In hope of eternal life. Notice, Paul commended confident expectation of eternal life as an aim of faithful apostolic ministry. This is what he wanted Titus' ministry to be about. This is what he wants our ministry to be about. Now, we need to be careful here because in our English vernacular, we typically use the term hope in a way that is directly different, distinct from the biblical world. So I I think of our English word hope is used a lot of times at this time of year. It's a new year, and we say stuff like, I hope I can lose 20 pounds this year. Now, what we mean by that is there is just, like, some, like, wish that this weight will magically drop off us. I mean, drop off of us, even though it hasn't done it the past five years we've wished for it. Okay? Or, I hope I can pay off all my credit cards this year. Or, for the college students, I hope I can find a girlfriend or a boyfriend this year. Like, it's, a, it's out there somewhere. Maybe it could happen. Not positive, But it would be nice to see? But biblically, when you see the word hope in your New Testament, you need to understand that it is being used in a different way than your English word hope. You could translate it this way. Confident expectation. Confident expectation. Based on God's promise, the only reason it's called hope is because it's not yet realized. It's another word for faith. Confident expectation. See, What he's saying here is that I want everyone in the ministries at Crete, every one of those churches, I want them to be characterized by a confident expectation in eternal life. This is encouragement. Encouragement based in eternal life. Now, there's a theological note we need to make here. In one sense, we already have eternal life, right? I mean, we quoted John 3.16 earlier. You believe in Jesus. He says he's coming to give you eternal life. Or John 5.12, you know this one. He who has the Son has life. Okay, yeah, there is a sense in which we already possess eternal life, but that's not what Paul's referring to here. He's not talking about the quality of eternal life. He's actually talking about the quantity of eternal life, that which escapes death. Eternal life isn't just here and now, but its fullest expression obviously is in the life to come. Death is not the end of our lives. We will not experience the reality of this aspect of eternal life until we die or until Jesus returns. And in that sense, we are all to be living not for this life, but for the one to come. I think a concrete expression of this would be being able to sing that song that we sang just a few minutes ago, It is not death to die, and to sing it with meaning and passion. I don't know about you. I, Phil, I don't know where you got this song. We didn't talk this week because I was out of town, but he put this on the schedule. Tanya and I had been speaking a few years ago, and I know this sounds really morbid, so forgive it, but I was kind of like talking through like songs I would want at my funeral, and that was one. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard it. That was probably ten years ago. And I thought, yes, that is my hope. That is my expectation. That's what I want people singing when I die. You may not be that passionate about it, but hopefully you could. (laughs) This morning when we were singing that song, say yes. No, no. This life isn't it. The next life. No, that's it. That's the one I want to live for. That's what Paul says he wanted for every person on that island. This is what faithful ministries are about. They want to have confident expectation in eternal life. But how? How do you have actually be so confident about something that you've never seen before? Well, he gives a couple reasons. The first reason is there in the text. Because God, who never lies, promised this in eternity past. Now, that's a beautiful thing to me. The God who never lies promised this in eternity past. I don't quote Greek words often, but this is a good one to do. The Greek word modifying God here is asudes. Asudes. It's a compound word. Asudes. Now, sudes would be familiar to you because we use it in English. Um, It's our prefix pseudo. So when I say pseudonym, what is that? It's a false name. Or maybe you've heard this one. Pseudoscience. What do we mean by that? False science. Now, interestingly, God is being modified here as asudes. There's this little article on the end that, uh, at the beginning that makes it the opposite of whatever it says. So God is not or without lying or deceit. It is totally absent of His character. Some translations put it the God who cannot lie. Some translations put it the God who does not lie. All it means is it's not even a part of his character, falsehood, deceit. It just can't be a part of him. How can we be so confident in eternal life? Because this God, who does not, cannot lie, promised eternal life before the ages began. This is so foreign to us. It's in our nature to break promises, but it's not in God's nature to break promises. Maybe you remember the uh, Benjamin Franklin quote. He wrote, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. (laughs) Even more certain than death and taxes is God's promise of eternal life. He promised it before the ages began. In some inter Trinitarian dialogue, before the world was created, God had decided that we would receive eternal life. That's one reason why you can be confident in eternal life, but he gives another. He says, look at your text there, verse 3 and at the proper time, manifested in his word, Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, that is a complicated sentence, but to break it apart, here's the reason. The first reason, I mean, the second reason is that because God manifested it or revealed it in His Word. So, it's not just something that God promised in eternity past, but it's something that He's exposed and He's revealed to us through the preaching of the Word. This isn't a secret promise, this is a promise that's been revealed. Manifested in His Word. Revealed by the means of the Gospel. We know that this is true because the Gospel says it to be true. Now, anybody could say anything, but here's the unique thing about the Gospel. We have someone in its message who has actually conquered death before. Nothing else has that hope. Nothing holds out that kind of promise. See, in in the gospel we have something unique. We can talk about eternal life because the one who claims to give eternal life has actually conquered death. Does that make sense? That's confidence. We can be as confident in eternal life as we are in that fact that Jesus conquered uh, death and has accomplished eternal life for us. Sin's curse infiltrating the earliest history of mankind caused thousands of years worth of individuals to think that death was the inescapable end of life. That was the large perspective of the Old Testament. A few people got the idea that there may have been life beyond the grave. But overall, they didn't have the same hope that we have. Yet God waited to reveal His truth at the right time. He waited for His Son to conquer death first, To show that this eternal life could be possible. And he finally made it known to us, listen, through the preaching of the apostolic gospel. Now, notice that last little phrase in the sentence. The preaching with which I have been entrusted. Paul is tying his authority back to his apostleship. Now this is a huge topic. One that I can't cover all in today's message, but... What we believe, what we preach, is rooted in what I would call apostolic tradition. There were only a few apostles. Jesus designated them himself. They were they were eyewitnesses of our Lord's resurrection. They were commissioned by him, and they were able to do, listen to this, they were able to do miraculous works in the first century that validated their authority. Now, this is the basis, by the way, of where we get our New Testament from. Say, so, hey, what makes the New Testament different than the Koran or some other religious book? They don't have these kind of representatives with this type of authority. This is why I want to be so careful when I hear, and I cringe when I hear somebody say, oh, I know apostle so-and-so down the street. No, that's not an apostle. He didn't see the risen Jesus. He has not validated his ministry by supernatural signs. The message that we preach was given by one of God's chosen representatives, validated. And that's why we read Galatians 1 earlier, where Paul defends his apostleship and says, I didn't get this from some other man. He says in Galatians 1, I didn't make this up. The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught me this. And now I'm passing it on to you. And that is what we are preaching here today. We have this hope of eternal life rooted in the apostolic preaching of the gospel. And all we're doing today is preaching the same thing that was preached 2,000 years ago. Ultimately, this all points at what? Confidence for eternity. That is what churches should be about. I came across an interesting story this week of a German Protestant theologian that I had Bred at one point in seminary. His name is Helmut Th- uh, Thielicke. His name's hard to pronounce. Now keep in mind, he's a German theologian. And I think he was alive from like 1908 to like, I don't know, the 1980s at some point. But needless to say, that put him in Germany teaching and preaching in the middle of World War II. Now this probably defies your expectations being an American. But there were actually Christians in Germany. <laughs> I know we just kind of think that all the Americans are Christians and everybody else is not. But there really were. There were Protestant Christians meeting in churches. They were trying to actually fight the, the Nazi infiltration. So here's Helmut in the middle of the Allied bombing raid. I mean, like at the height of World War II. I mean, there's needs all around him. I mean, people are, are dying by the day. And what's he doing? He continues to preach on Sundays and teach his theology class on Wednesdays. <laughs> now, if I was a bystander at the time, it would be easy to say, how irrelevant! Like, dude, you should get with the program. We're in the middle of war. Why, why are you still teaching? But he was truly preaching as a dying man to dying men. And here's how he described one incident. This is in the foreword to one of his books. It's worth sharing. He tells this story. He says, After an air attack, I was helping with the cleanup operations and was standing at the edge of a huge crater opened up by an aerial bomb. It had killed an officer and 50 women auxiliary air force raids. A woman came up to me. She was the wife of an officer who had been killed and asked whether I was Helmut Feliki." For I was covered in dust and grime and she did not recognize me at first. She then showed me her husband's cap and said, this was all that was left of him. Only last Thursday I was with him attending your lecture and I want to thank you for preparing him for his death. And then she quietly shook my hand. Listen to Helmut's words. He says, what we were doing there was teaching truth in the face of death. There, the only thing that was of any help at all was the gospel itself. Everything else simply dissolved into thin air. Helmut was doing what all faithful ministries do, and that is holding out the hope of eternal life in the face of death. Brothers and sisters, it, it is. It will be so tempting for us to look at these more relevant and pressing needs around us, and think this message of the gospel. What does it have to do with the real world problems we face today? Marriages are in a mess. This country's in a mess. The world seems in a mess. Racial tensions are at an all-time high. I mean, we could go down the list of all the social ills that surround us and think, we need a more relevant message. And yet, Paul is telling us there is nothing more relevant than holding out the hope of eternal life to those who do not have it. This is what we are to be all about. May we never get bored with this message. I had the frustrating experience a couple months ago of meeting with a local pastor who shall remain unnamed. And the lunch was a pleasant one as far as it goes. We shot the breeze for the first 30 minutes, and I was just trying to encourage him and find out how I could pray for him and his ministry. And um, I just noticed that there was a, a lack of substance to some of his questions, and so I just finally asked him if he was a Christian. And a follower of Jesus and he said yes and he answered in all the right ways and then I said well, well tell me about your church well, you know what are y'all doing over there like how you know how can I pray for you and he's like yeah we're just you know we're just plugging along like we're just trying to get more people to come and i would try to resonate with them I'm like okay yeah I get that you want more people to come uh, for what like what's what's on your heart you know like and he Goes back and forth, but he still never gives me anything meaningful. It just sounded like he'd, he'd be happy as long as there were butts in the seats. I said, surely there's more to it than this. I said, I, so I, I said look, let me ask you this. I said, I'm trying to figure out how to pray for you. I said, how are your, do your people understand the gospel? I said, let's just keep it basic. Do your people understand the gospel? And he looked at me funny and he said, you know, that's a great question. I should probably ask that. What is your ministry about? If it's not about the gospel, what are you offering? What is there to preach if it's not the promise and the confidence of eternal life? Now it's easy just to jump on the random church down the street that doesn't line up with Scripture, but this question isn't for the church down the street. This question is for us. Are we about the Gospel? About the confidence of eternal life? As we grow old together as members, as we shuffle off, as the song says, this mortal coil, are we continuing to speak the promise of eternal life from the God who cannot lie? That's our mission. And by the way, I say this very practically. We will never be about this if you aren't about this. That makes sense, right? Like this is a church. This is all of us. And so the question begins with us. Think back, you know, it's, it's, it's the new year. Everybody has already done some reflecting. As you reflected back on the previous year, were there times where you had actually held out confidence of eternal life to someone who needed it? That is what God expects. So faithful ministries are all about conversions through faith and consecration through knowledge and confidence for eternity. If I were to put this in another way to make it more easier for us to remember, I would say that faithful ministries are about evangelism, edification, and encouragement. Evangelism, edification, and encouragement. And notice how Paul ends this salutation. Verse 4, he's already talked about the from. Now notice the to. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You see what he does here? Now he links his apostolic prerogatives to Titus. He calls him his son. He's saying, for everyone who would read this letter, I want you to know that Titus, he's with me, and therefore, he's going to be about the same things that I'm about. And this is good for you. This will result in a good experience for you. Grace and peace to you. Both of those beautiful promises. And how do we experience those promises? Through God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. By the way, it is very worth pointing out because I know some of you have questioned the deity of Christ. Notice here that it says Christ Jesus our Savior, but notice that at the end of verse three, He says by the command of God our Savior. This does this not reflect something of the Christology of Paul that he also views Jesus Christ and God as one in the same office? with The same authority. Both fully God. Both fully able to save. And he says, Titus, this is not just for me. This is for you. This is for all of us. This is what faithful ministry is about. Carry this on. I read about a story this week that was first reported on the History Channel in which a man bought this property at auction. And in it, he received obviously a house and a bunch of farmland and a barn. And in the barn, there was a bunch of old junk. And so, naturally, as people do, he went to rummage through to see if he could find anything of value. And much to his surprise, he cracked open a chest and found a violin with the little words etched onto the side, Stradivarius. (laughs) He thought he had struck the jackpot. Immediately, he goes to get this thing appraised by a professional, hoping that he'd be able to cash in millions. And yet his hope was soon frustrated because the violin was a forgery. It was an imitation produced in the early 1900s, only worth about $500. And the appraiser concluded by telling this disappointed violin owner, remember, just because something has a label doesn't mean it's real. I would say the same is true for us as we consider ministry. We consider church. Just because something says church doesn't mean it's real. What is a real ministry about? It's not about the numbers, it's not about the property, it's not about the feeling, it's not about the programs. It's about the gospel. It's about evangelism. It's about edification. It's about encouragement. This is what we are to be about. And again, we will never be about this unless you are about this. Can I ask just a couple questions as we bring this to a close? First, Do you know, believe, trust in, depend upon this gospel that's been preached this morning? (laughs) You're not a part of this ministry. You're not a part of God's work on this earth until you have responded to Him in faith. Yes, you have sinned, but Jesus came to save, and He did it by dying satisfy God's wrath for your sin, rising again to show that that payment had been received and all those who repent, turn from that sin, trust in Jesus alone can be saved. It's that faith. And then they grow in godliness and they enjoy confidence in eternal life. Do you have that today? If you don't, please, either respond in faith now where you are or talk to one of us after. By us, that could mean the pastors, that could mean one of the people. We want you to know the gospel. And for those of you who are here, you're a part of Faith Bible Church. You said yes, I've done that. I'm check. Faith of God's elect. I'm believing. The next questions are really simple. Are you growing? When was the last time God's truth? Changed you and made you more like Him. Not in some general way. I'm talking something specific. Where, where you, you knew that you had become more loving. Or you knew that you had given up something because it wasn't holy. Or you knew that you had adjusted some practice to better reflect His righteousness. Truth is not having its intended impact if it is not making you more like Him. You're not contributing to the mission of this church apart from that. Hey, and if you know what? If you're struggling with that, yeah, you should be reading the Word, you should be praying on your own, but one of the best ways that you can do this is to let the church, let your brothers and sisters in Christ help you. Sure, that could be a small group, but it doesn't have to be a small group. It could just be you getting together with other believers before you leave this service on Sunday and say, hey, I'm learning this and I'm struggling to apply it to my life. Will you pray with me about this? I want to become more like Him and then finally that confidence in eternal life this is a good thing <laughs> this is a good thing that we have don't view evangelism as an obligation it is an opportunity to share truly good news who would not want to know that they could live eternally with the one who bled and died for them this is what our lord wants from us this is what our lord wants from you let's pray or as we look ahead to a new year we acknowledge again that we are yours and that this is your church or we so desire we so desire that these features of a faithful ministry would be true of this place Lord, I can't do this. The elders can't do this. Or there's no group of people alone who can do this. Lord, it is only Your Spirit taking Your Word and working through us or that can make us the type of church You want us to be and to produce the type of impact You want to see in this area and beyond. Or we commend or, this work to You and pray that You would accomplish it in us. And yet, practically, we ask that if there's any one of these features that is not true in our life that you would make it true today Lord. if there's anyone here who is yet to respond in faith to you i pray that they would believe today or do your work in the only way that you can and do it for your namesake and it's in that name we pray amen